So the statistics about the state of the church in our country are still bugging me. I can't get away from them. I don't know what you've read in the last few years. If you ever look at Pew Research online or look at George Barna and his research about the church, or if you even remember what I've shared the last couple months about the state of the church in our country and the state of many denominations, most big denominations are shrinking. Most people that claim to know Christ have no spiritual discipline. They barely even believe in the Trinity, the reality of a real devil, that we have an adversary, a spiritual adversary that hates us and wants to tear us and our families down. They question whether the Bible really is the absolute truth cover to cover. Their lifestyle pretty much looks just like the culture. They say from all the surveys, there's hardly any difference. One or two out of ten display a difference. The others that claim to know Christ, there is no spiritual discipline that makes them look any different. They're not saying no to anything that the culture is saying no to. They pretty much just say, God loves me, got my ticket to heaven, so they think, and they live no differently than anyone else. Look up those, if you're interested, if you want to kind of get more than that little thumbnail, I encourage you to go online. Look at George Barna. Look at all of his works. Look at Pew Research. Uh, and there are many others that have done those studies. And it was a book recently by Jim Zimbala called uh, Storm. And it is a storm. It's a storm in our country. And it should bother every one of us. I would hope that you think you're in a solid church and that you would have reasons to back that up. That you understand that we're a biblical church based on the gospel of Jesus Christ and the promise and truth of his word. I hope you could mark off things in your, in your head from your experience here to say, but I believe we're a solid church. I believe I've seen the evidence of that. Well, I hope that that's true before God. And I hope that you could say that about your church. But I'm really concerned. I'm concerned that we have a culture that wants to hide, a, a concern that we would rather be politically correct. And I'm talking about the, uh, the, our nationwide uh, issue here with churches all around our country. But we're not every church all around our country, right? We're this church. And you're sitting here because you're a member or you're a tender of this church. And you can make a contribution that can keep us out of those statistics. And for the glory of God, we're going to be a prevailing church. That's what God has called us to be, is a unified church that is a prevailing church. When I mean prevailing, I don't mean better than someone or something else or another church so that we can take pride. Prevailing because the the blessing and the power of God rests on us. And when we know that and we see that, we're ready to stand up for Christ. We're unified in him. The statistics bother me, but this church is not going to be a statistic. I see the warnings in Revelation. Maybe you do too on those, those challenges to the seven churches. Read those in chapters 3 and 4 of Revelation. I mean, seriously, read those. We're going to stay away from all that because God's directed us with clarity and with truth, and because we can. It's like, why be a weak church? Why be a church that hides? Why be a person or a family that blends in? Let's lift up Christ in a powerful way together, and let's be a prevailing church. Pure, powerful, anointed, having community impact, known for saving lives, saving families, saving marriages, known to reach the most needy anywhere around that we can get our hands on and reach the most needy in the world that God directs us to minister to. Pulling people from the darkness, finding healing of every kind in the name of the Lord for whatever things we need healing for and from. Well, that's what this series is all about. It's 1 Corinthians. It's the United Church. And some of you may say, like, well, they weren't totally united. 
Well, that's true. And that's kind of why it's such a great book, because it shows how God would want us to be united and to grow in being more and more united, more and more proud of Christ, and more and more powerful for his kingdom's sake. Not because we're the cruise ship and come here and get all your needs met and chill and kick back, but we're a warship, if you will. We're out there to rescue people that are in darkness and in death and in sin, and we understand what we're up against, and we know we have the power of Christ, and we know we're called to rescue. And as people are rescued and built up in Christ, that's exciting for a family and a marriage. That turns them around. That makes an impact on their community and their friends. And that's the kind of church that God has called us to be. That's why we're studying this book, 1 Corinthians. A church united. A church united is a strong church, is a prayerful church, is a prevailing church, is a church that rests with the power of God on us. So 1 Corinthians is a great book. It's a long book. We're going to be in it a while. So guess what? Get to, get to read it. Get to know it. Read ahead of us. You know, get, it, get out in front a little bit. Just really chew on a lot of these principles. Talk about them in your, your life groups and in your men's and women's studies. And just let's live in these truths about the United Church. Because there are a lot of great topics here. The Apostle Paul treats unity, marriage, purity, the Lord's Supper, proper worship, the resurrection, the Holy Spirit, what real love is about, the use of spiritual gifts, and many others. His main point is to help this church in Corinth become a strong and increasingly powerful church in its time, in its venue, for the sake of the kingdom. <clears throat> Foundational truths that shape godly behavior personally and corporately. You're going to hear that all through the series. You'll be challenged personally, and you'll be challenged corporately, because we are one in Christ. We are his body, just different members, different parts, right? You're a toe. He's an earlobe. <laughs> I'm an elbow, it doesn't really, right? All different parts, but one body. So one body is going to move forward in Christ through this series. But you have a responsibility to strengthen the rest of the body. You have to play your role, so do I. So that's where we're going. You ready? 1 Corinthians. Grab your Bibles. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 1. I'm just going to read. You won't see these on the screen, so... We'll get to the verses that I'll be studying in just a minute. But this is kind of his, his greeting and his thanksgiving, his prayer. I'll just read these. And I want you to picture yourself a new believer or a five-year-old believer in Corinth getting this letter from the Apostle Paul, hearing his heart, hearing his vision, hearing these statements about your identity. They're true for them. They're true for us today. Here we go. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those in every place who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Powerful, right? Get to see his heart. It's just like huge statements about their identity in him. As a church, sanctified in Christ, that's mean, that means set apart and made holy and increasingly 
taught to be more holy and becoming more holy. Called to be saints together, graciously enriched in Christ, all through his grace, not because people got their lives together and impressed God and then he was beholden to bless them. It's like, no, they said, we need your blessing. We're in bad shape. We release our sin. Forgive us. Jesus, then in Christ, through that forgiveness and grace, we're enriched. We're sustained by Christ to the end. That's unity language right there. So powerful. Called to be saints together everywhere. Sustained by the end, by the power and our faith in Christ. Did you notice in the last, I don't even actually remember the exact day it was, but in this last week or so, 21 Coptic Christians, they were Egyptians, were beheaded because of their faith in Christ. If you paid attention to the media, you'll understand that um, they weren't called Christians many times, but the truth is they were Christians, they were Coptic Christians, and those that killed them, the ISIS men that killed them, so they killed them because they were people of the cross. That should make it really, really clear. They knew whether the media represents it accurately or not. There are some outlets, some stations that do. They were people of the cross. They were Coptic Christians in Egypt. They were gathered together. They were beheaded. We're their brothers and sisters in Christ. They took a stand for the cross and for their faith. We're united together, saints together in the cross. We are people of the cross, too, if we claim to be Christians. Now, it got a lot of press. Well, because how often does that happen? It's so brutally and put on video for the whole world to see, mocking Christianity, mocking the cross, mocking their faith. But actually, it's been happening around our world in staggering numbers. It just doesn't get as much publicity as that one event. Christians have been killed in over 31 countries of the world this last year, persecuted, killed, churches burned. This is really happening all around our world right now. Are you aware of that? So that really was nothing new. That was just graphic and horrible and put on a video. So what I'm saying is that when you understand the unity that comes through the cross, it comes at a cost. But those 21 Egyptian Coptic Christians had Jesus on their lips when they were executed. And I bet you they were praying for their captors and those that were killing them just like Jesus did when he was crucified. That's what this book is about. It's a serious approach to what unity really means and how that happens in a world that doesn't take kindly to Christ, his message, the message of the cross, or you or I if we follow him. Now we may think, well, geez, that's over there. That's on another side of the ocean, like good thing. Well, there's different kinds of persecution. Sometimes it's more physical, sometimes it's psychological, Sometimes it's just political correctness. Sometimes it's, I won't get that job or be liked at work or liked by those friends or liked at school. And so because of the pressure of culture or peer groups or businesses or whatever else, we can feel a persecution and a heaviness to just kind of keep, keep quiet and keep to ourselves. Well, that's kind of changing in our world now. And realize that if it comes here and in our country, we don't shy away either. We stand up under the strength of Christ because we're people of the cross. The cross unifies believers, and that's what it's doing around this world. You're going to have to choose. That's become very, very clear. People have to choose. It really purifies the church. It purifies those who, those who really, truly follow Christ and those who only say they want to, or for some reason they like the label of Christianity, but there's no reality, no life change, no courage. It's going to become a little more black and white. I think you'll see that in our world.
And I want to be that kind of church that's in the light, that's white, that's pure, that has the power of God resting on us as individuals and as a church. So let's look at a couple points from these passage, this passage, starting in verse 10. The cross unifies believers. I appeal to you, this is verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind with the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. Paul wanted unity, right? So what's he addressing here? And you'll see it again in chapter 3, just that there was some breakdown of unity. Awesome, you've come to Christ, but there is a sense of, wow, in Christ, I, I also want to be able to lift up this person. I'm really an Apollos follower. Cephas means the most to me. I really want to just say it's about Jesus, you know, but there's others that say, well, I just want to say it's about Paul. And he said, no, we've got to stop the division, the quarreling. We have to be united with the same mind and the same judgment. He said, we're all baptized, right? There's one baptism. There's one faith, one Lord, one baptism. One baptism, and it's in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Not in the name of Paul, not in the name of Cephas, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We're commanded by God's word when we come to Christ and people are included in God's family that they be baptized. At the end of second service, right over here, we're going to baptize a guy named Juan Laura. And uh, what a testimony he has. God's worked tremendously in his life. But we're not going to baptize. Mondo is not going to baptize him in his name. It's not going to be Juan Laura baptized in the name of Mondo Scott. <laughs> baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that's our unity. If you know Christ is your Savior and you yet, haven't yet been baptized, courageously step in, take that next step of faith that God's calling you to. And to say, I declare him as my Lord and Savior, and I'm included in his family, and I'm taking that step of obedience to declare that I'm proud of Christ and what he means and who he is to me. What he means to me and who he is to me. Paul wanted to make sure there's no spiritual elitism, no popularity contests, no pride. You've heard that, that phrase, you know, in these meetings we leave pride at the, right? In Christ, the body of Christ, there's one doorway. Jesus said he is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the door to the sheep. We come into a relationship with him through a small door, if you will. It's a great way to think of it. A small, low door that the only way to get through that door is to what? Is to kneel and crawl through. And if you're not willing to do that in your heart before a holy, awesome, majestic, powerful, an incredible God, then for some reason you're still hanging on to a little bit of what you can do for yourself. No, you get on your hands and knees and you crawl into the small door and you come in humbly that God would lift you up. Pride for Christians is always at the door of Christ. That's always where it is. It's brought to the cross. It's dealt a death blow there. There's no pride in the kingdom of God. There shouldn't be. We have the same inheritance, the same Savior, the same promises. We have equal standing before the Lord. Jesus is the VIP. The rest of us are his servants. Do you like that? You should love that. If you're really a believer, it's like, nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with God rescuing me. But he's building me up in Christ. Not to be better, not to reinstate my pride, but to, to really instate 
humility. Same inheritance, same Savior, same promises, same equal standing before the Lord, but Jesus is the one that's lifted up. You hear some people talk about having their favorite teachers. I think that's okay. You can have those that speak to you more often than others, and you have a preference or whatever. I think that's kind of how people probably pick churches largely, not completely. That's okay. But just realize any human being can stumble and disappoint you. Is that true? Have you stumbled and disappointed others yourself? We'd all raise our hand on that and say, yes. It's no different for those that lead God's church. We better be praying for our leaders and for those that speak the truth or are sharing the scriptures. But the bottom line is, it's not their church. You know, if you hear someone say, oh, I go to so-and-so's church, that's faulty thinking. It's not their church. If you attend here, you don't go to Gordy Duncan's church. I go to Christ's church. It's called Cornerstone Community Church. There are some elders, and I can list all the elders, and they're the ones that kind of govern the church, as Scripture says, and then we have some pastors that help, and they use their gifts, and then everyone else is actually called to identify their gifts and use their gifts, so we are His church. Who's the head of the church? Christ is the head of the church. This is His church, not my church, not the elders' church, not, not anyone else's church. It is, if you want to say most accurately, it's our church. So when someone says, where do you go? You go to my church, and my church is not 379 Science Drive. My church is... This gospel, Jesus Christ, us linked in him through the cross together. We're his body. We're his church. He's the head. It's his church. That other language is actually scary. Be wary of title holders. That's why we don't go by pastor so-and-so, father so-and-so. Scripture is very clear. You don't call anyone father except the heavenly father in heaven. You don't call anyone good teacher except Jesus you, if you look at me or someone else who teaches or whoever you listen to, you should say they're biblical and they're using their gift of teaching. Period. End of story. They're accurate. They speak the truth unapologetically. They're not fudging anything. Hopefully you can say about me or anyone you're listening to, they're very humble because they know it's Jesus and his truth. Titles mean nothing. The only reason we have titles and Whatever you want to, you know, on the back of this bulletin is you know who to call about whatever. <laughs> You're struggling with something with your child or in your marriage, you know who to call. It's not because we're on any pedestal or we're up the chain, anything like that. If you look at any leader or pastor or elder in this church, you should see us more than anything else as loving servants. Loving servants to you. And you should take your cues from the loving service around, servants around you to be fellow servants one to another. Anyone think of an example of that in Scripture? Where Jesus made that exceedingly clear? When he washed their feet, he washed the disciples' feet. He's heading to the cross. He's done miracles upon miracles. He's taught with authority. I mean, people can't even corner him. They're about to beat him up, murder him, and hang him on a cross. And he... In a time when he needs, probably you would think, the attention and the love of his closest friends, he gets up from the table and he washes their feet. So when you think of someone who says, oh, I'm willing to serve, but I serve through my gifting so I can still stay up here. Literally, Jesus literally washed their feet. He didn't say, you know, let me give you a metaphor about humility. He literally got up and washed their feet. If you can't picture an elder or a pastor in this church washing your feet or serving or picking up trash or pushing chairs around, whatever most menial thing you might think is menial, I don't see it as menial. I think every task in the church is an awesome worship experience to God. If you, if you view it that way, if you can't picture that, please come and tell me. If you can't picture that with any one of us, something's wrong. 
Because Jesus said, you want to be great in the kingdom, be the servant of all. You can't wash someone's feet, and that's, a, that's below you, literally below you. <laughs> you have a pride issue. You can't go next to someone who has less money or looks a little different, or their language or their skin color is different, or they might smell, they might. There's something wrong with who? You, me. We should be able to go with the compassion of Christ to anyone and to anything. There's no task that's beneath any one of us. Unity in Christ comes when we don't lift up other people, we lift up Christ and that difference of how amazing he is and we can't believe that he rescued us and calls us his son or daughter. Then we can go out in the unity and the humility of Christ, not trying to be spiritually elite, better than anyone else, saying, well, I follow him, I said, well, this is my teacher, I go to so-and-so's church. Nothing to do with it, it's about Jesus. Then the cross really unites us. Our faith in Christ is what unites us because he's the way, the truth, and the life. We lift up him and no one else. You're supposed to honor your teachers. You're supposed to respect your leaders. That's good. Church functions in a healthy way. But you only worship Jesus. He's the only one you worship. The cross unifies believers. The cross is also the power and the wisdom of God. Powerful verses coming up. Pay attention. Verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The message of the cross doesn't need help from mankind or their eloquence. The message of the cross does not need high vocabulary or high IQ. Good thing, because I'd be disqualified. And many of you would be too. The message of the cross does not need humor or cleverness. The message of the cross is powerful in and of itself. It is it's the definition of power and the power of God. The worst thing I can do is get in the way of the message because then it won't have its power, right? That'd be the, actually the stupidest, foolish, most foolish thing I could do. That gives me great comfort. Some of you don't know me very well or haven't heard me say this. I was not heading into ministry to be this teacher, to be up weekly before people to talk. In fact, I was practically throwing up when I had to, in college, when I had to get up and give a speech. All my three-by-five cards all lined up, all organized, you know, my main points, and I'm about to barf in my seat, and I'm just I hope they don't call me. I hope they go really long. I hope that person tanks and goes 20 minutes instead of 10, and I won't get called. That's who I was. I want you to realize that. This doesn't make any sense that I'm up here. But that gives me courage because it's not about me. And if you think you know where God's taking you and you have it all planned, you don't. Has anyone <laughs> seen that already? Have you lived long enough to go, oh, I thought I might have been, I thought it would look like this, I thought my dream, I thought, you don't have any idea where he's going to take you. 
All you have to do is say, Lord, you're the one in charge. I'll follow you as you open the doors. I mean, I followed him in ministries as he opened the doors. This is where I thought I would land. I don't have an understanding, really. I don't know where God's taking me next. I try not to live as much as possible too much further down the road than just today, if, if I can. If we get in the way of the gospel, if we get in the way of what God wants us to do, it's hard, it's hard, hard trekking, but boy, it's full of surprises when we let the message that has its own power do its own work. So here's the message. People are not basically good, they're evil. God says that all of us on our best days, our righteousness to him and before him, and he's, he's the only one that counts, is like filthy rags. We are sinners that fall short of the glory of God. Everyone that's ever been created stumbles in sin and doesn't keep God's law perfectly. So we're all guilty. We all fall short. It's all sin. That's the bad news. No such thing as good news until you recognize the bad news, right? Can't make a change in your life if there's something bad going on unless you're willing to admit, yeah, it's kind of a bad thing. When we recognize the gospel is about the bad news, but then the good news that Christ came to be the power that we couldn't be ourselves, to be the rescuer that we needed, to be the savior because we were stuck in our sin, to free us, free us for the life, this abundant life he has in mind. Not trying to grab it from the culture, not try to fill the holes and the emptiness with things of the world that don't satisfy. And you're going to get more of them and more often and you go crazy. He says, I want to give you peace. If you would believe that God so loved the world, that Jesus was God's only son, and that believing in him you wouldn't perish, you will have everlasting, eternal life. That's the gospel. That's powerful. I tried to say it pretty clear and straight. The Lord said, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you're here today and you're hearing these words, you're hearing from God himself, are you saved? Have you given your life to Christ? Do you know it? Is there any question? Call out in the name of the Lord that you'd be saved. Confess your sin to the one who came to be a perfect sacrifice so you could be forgiven. That's the gospel. That's where the power is. The awesome thing is I can hide behind that. I can hide behind that. I don't have to be anything. You don't have to be anything great. In fact, Paul made that really clear. Like we're, we're, we're not these, he said it to the, to the Corinthians. He goes, none of you or most of you aren't of any kind of royal background. You're not these highfalutin landowners and politicians. You're humble, you're blue collar, you're common folk. This was about the wisdom and power of God. And if you can relate to that, just go, this is about the wisdom and power of God. I don't understand how that's all the power exactly, but that's what he says. And I'm just going to line up behind the message because it changes me and it's the message people need to hear. Then he addresses, he addresses Gentiles and Jews and he says, you know, because those are the two main groups of people, right? In Corinth, it was the Gentiles, whether they were Greek or Roman or it was the Jew. The Gentiles want philosophical wisdom. They want to sit around and pontificate. Do you know anyone like that? They love to hear themselves talk and all that they know from the internet and their latest search or searches from all the books that they've read maybe and, and they, they like debate, they like discussion. Well, these guys had it down. They had their own Areopagus and you think Athens was about 45 miles away where Corinth was. Major thoroughfare, a commercial thoroughfare between Asia and Rome and there's lots going on in the city. They're well known, there was lots of money, lots of intellectual thinking. Lots of debating, philosophy, a desire to discover for yourself. 
the meaning of life, its origins, the purpose of life. But looking to each other, looking to self, debating one another. They wanted to see something very intellectual. God and Christ going to a cross, getting beat up and murdered, to them that was failure and foolishness. They didn't even want to consider it. They looked down on the gospel. The Jews wanted miraculous signs. They wanted to lift up in their pride. Isn't that the craziest thing when Jesus came? He didn't come to start a religion. He came to share with those that he created that I'm here, God in flesh, to make you a way, a bridge back to God the Father. I will give my life because I'm the perfect, being God, perfect sacrifice for you. And it's very simple. He came to correct the existing religious system, the Jewish system, because it had become so full of pride. The Jews wanted these miraculous signs. They wanted power. They wanted to get out from under Roman rule. They wanted to set things up themselves. Jesus, you're not going to a cross. You're going to a throne. And you're going to rule it now from earth. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to bring the power. <laughs> give me the sign, right? Jesus said, I'll give you a sign. I'll be crucified, and three days later, I'll be raised from the dead. I'll give you a sign. This temple, they thought it meant the literal temple, right? The temple of his body would be destroyed, but in Christ, new life would come. So the Gentiles looking to be philosophical and right and prideful in their knowledge and in their designs and their intellect and their ability to evaluate. Jews looking for miraculous signs so they could set up things in power. They didn't want to bend the knee. They wanted to be respected. They wanted to be deliverers. They wanted to walk proud. So then you have the message of Christ, someone who lived consistently, lovingly, compassionately, mercifully, went to the cross to give his life so that people could have life, so that sin and Satan would be conquered. Colossians is very clear with that, that Jesus made a spectacle of Satan, sin, and death at the cross. And you can look back and say, the shame was on Satan and the shame was on my sin. Jesus took it all, though, because he was raised up in new life. Death could not conquer him. The sting of death for believers is taken out now. And we have just awesome stuff to look forward to in Christ. That's where the wisdom is. So we always have a choice. Are we going to be wiser in ourselves, or are we going to say God is the wise one? Are we going to let him continue to teach us and reshape what we think, or do we want to philosophize and debate and try to kind of take God on? We'd be much wiser, much smarter to say, Lord, you have all wisdom, and I'm going to be a lifelong learner before your word and through the guidance of the Holy Spirit. I don't care about being seen as sophisticated in the world's eyes. I'm going to trade in the sophistication, the reputation of being viewed a certain way, and I'm going to cling to the cross, the simple childlike faith you ask of me, admitting that I was morally bankrupt in need of God, in need of a Savior, and I found one in Christ, and he's the hope of the world. That's the message of the gospel. That's the message of the cross. The cross unifies us as believers. The cross is the power and the wisdom of God. We don't have to look any further. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in Christ. How he lived, what he taught, and his sacrifice, that people can have life. That's where your boast should be. That's where my boast should be. That's where he goes next in verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were, were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. 
God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Remember Paul's struggle with that? He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. Brilliant, high IQ, well, <laughs> came from the tribe of Benjamin. Well-respected, lifted up, and then he took full advantage of that. When he came to Christ and was humbled because he was living for pride, he was living uh, you know, for his understanding of just the Old Testament and didn't recognize Christ yet. But once that, ch that changed, he looked at all of that pride, all of that boasting, all of his background, all of his pedigree, all of his human advantage, and he says, I consider that rubbish compared to knowing Christ. He's the wisdom of God. I'm following him. I'm getting behind him. He's my wisdom. He's the power because he's God. I'm going to follow. I'm going to attach my wagon to him. Wisdom that you see in Paul's life. And he says, we should do the same. We should boast and boast only in the Lord. It's a challenge in this culture to not boast and think of yourself as a big shot a little bit, isn't it? At least a couple of your, your friends or the peers or people at school or people kind of think that you're cool and lifted up. And I mean, that's a challenge. It's a challenge when you're new in a job or you're established in a job. You want to be looked at a certain way. You want to be seen and thought of as an intellectual and efficient and smart and successful, right? That's normal. But we have to battle that and say, wait a minute. If any of that's going on, it's because of what Christ is doing in me and through me and it's for his glory. So instead of us ever pretending to be strong or stronger than we are, the wisest thing we could do is to say we're weak in ourselves because we know our sin. We know what we think about people that's not right, things we do that don't please God. We know that. If we could just kind of be honest and go like, okay, I don't have to pretend that with God. But he says if I'm weak and I just acknowledge that, that in him I can be strong and he can bring strength and strong choices in my life. He can bring about righteousness and sanctification and redemption, and I want that. So even though the world will look down on us if we're people of the cross or the message of the cross, even though they'll say it's lowly and despised, there's nothing there, you're going to hang your life on that, you're going to view God, you know, he's a crutch for you, he's this, whatever mocking, whatever they would say, you just come back to the word of God and the promises and the truth of who he is and what he's doing in your life and that you have truth and you have hope and you can boast about that. Look at these verses. We'll, we'll end with these. 1 Corinthians 15, 10. This is Paul speaking a little later in the book, near the end of the book. By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. By the grace of God, I am what I am. People want to lift him up. Remember? You know, people would want to say, oh, I'm a Paul. It's like, no, can't do that. Anything you see in me is because of Christ. He gets the credit. Bypass me, look to Christ. Can you say that? Bypass me, look to Jesus. Do they see so much of Christ in your life and the way you're living and the choices you're making that they, they actually do bypass you? It's just kind of more typical for them to think of like, you're just really sold out to the Lord. You're just really different. You're so gracious. You're so, you know, people will tell me stories here and there and it's cool to hear them say, you know, people ask me like, why do I have so much joy? Not, not me, people said, had told me that. And I said, well, what do you say? And they go, well, I just tell them it's, it's Jesus living in me. It's him. Or you're patient or you have integrity. When people say those things, you give Christ the credit. You don't say, oh, well, hey, thanks. No, you're cool too. 
No, you just say, it's, thank you. It's, God has really done a work in my life. He's really changed me and helped me. That's what you do. And it brings the attention to Christ. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Galatians 6, 14. Paul, again, in, the le- in this letter now to the Galatian church. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. He understood. I boast in Christ. I boast in the cross because it's given me life. I boast because at that point my enemy was put to shame and that Satan and any evil spirit. He was put to shame. He was conquered. Death was conquered. I was given freedom. That's where I celebrate. That's who I boast in. That's what changes me. That's what continues to lead me toward the hope that I have. It's redemption that's coming. It's sanctification I'm experiencing and I hide in the righteousness of Christ. I'm lifting him up. If we lift up Christ, you know that verse? If Christ be lifted up, he will what? He'll draw all men to himself. So you and I are here to lift up Christ. You and I are united in the cross. It's the power and wisdom of God. And it's our only boast. We start living that way more and more. Not only will you be identified as a person of the cross, but there will be power in your life to actually affect others to move closer to who Jesus is. If it's not changing the way you relate to people, then come to Christ. Give your life to Christ. Start, because it should. Your grace, your mercy, your compassion, your thoughtfulness, your sacrifice, your helping the poor, you taking initiative with people, you walking across the room and the person who's marginalized. If it's not changing you, you haven't invited Christ in and his gospel in because it is powerful and is the wisdom of God. And it will direct your life because the Holy Spirit will come in and start directing you. So I encourage you today, if I didn't just describe you, you know, that you would come to Christ and open your heart to him. If you know Christ, then take incredible honor in the fact that your Savior, your best friend, and your good shepherd went to the cross, was victorious over death and sin for you, and you can hide your whole life behind his victory. Amen? We're going to worship right now. We're going to have a communion. Uh, that's going to be passed out uh, in just a moment. If you know Christ is your Savior, take the juice and the bread and hold on to it, and we'll eat it together. Unified in Christ, we'll eat it together. Uh, If you don't know Christ, this is a time to pray and receive him, and then you would be able to take those elements and to remember him and his sacrifice. And we'll be worshiping in between as well. So let's pray.